chapter 2. Sue and I uh, spent the week with, uh, or most of the week, with that group of folks there. It's the, uh, it's the, uh, some of the pastors and their wives from the Northwest, from our fellowship of churches called the Baptist Network Northwest. And every year this time we have a retreat for the pastors and wives and and for everybody who's in full-time Christian service, there's always a lot of missionaries there and uh, other folks who uh, serve the Lord in that way. And we always, uh, in recent years, I don't know how many years we've been there, but probably 20 years we've been going to uh, the Cannon Beach Christian Conference Center, Cannon Beach, Oregon. Beautiful, uh, beautiful location, a great facility, great food, and, and of course, above all, great fellowship with uh, our colleagues. Um, we generally have about three events a year, different kinds of events where we get together and, and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, stories told. Uh, there were missionary stories and true stories. <laughs> Pastor stories and true stories told. Um, <laughs> The speaker this year was a, a fellow named Dave Haig, Dr. Dave Haig, who uh, was a camp acquaintance of my wife at Lost Lake Camp over in eastern Washington. I knew Dave's dad very well. He's with the Lord now. He was a pastor for many years in our fellowship. And uh, Dave is a pastor at a Baptist church down in uh, uh, Placerita, California. He's also a faculty member at the uh, Master's College uh, it was a blessing to sit under his teaching. The first time I met him, I, we didn't really personally meet, but the first time I saw him was when I was in high school. And our choir from our public high school, Marysville Pilchuck High School, sang over in Spokane at his high school. And uh, that we had dinner together, the two choirs, before the concert. And I, I still have a mental image of a young man getting up to pray before we ate together. I'm sure that couldn't happen now, but back then it was, was okay. But I remember admiring him because I was not walking with the Lord, and, and I thought, wow, what a, what a great, uh, courageous, uh, godly young man. And heard more of his testimony this week about how he got saved uh, in his teenage years. And, and uh, it was great to see how the Lord has brought him along and has brought me along. And and uh, we shared some good fellowship, and, and it was great to see how we, we, we share the most important conviction of all, and that is the conviction that God's Word is the basis of our life, of our faith, of our practice as believers and as a church. We're spending a little bit of time here as we start a new ministry year going back to the Word of God saying, what is the church supposed to be? There are many concepts of of what the church ought to be in the Christian world, and certainly a lot of churches that really aren't Christian, but they are religious, and so we have many ideas of what the church should be. And we began a week ago saying, what should the church be? And looking at God's, uh, God's definition of the church. And uh, it comes to us in large part, it starts right here in Acts 2, on the beginning of the first church, I'm sure if you read carefully through Acts, you'll see the name of it was the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. And we read about the beginning, and the beginning really sets the pattern. Uh, and not all of the details between them and us are the same, but the patterns are the same. And those patterns continue through the New Testament. Let's read about it, starting in Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, that is the 120 disciples, including the 12, they were all together with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or ability. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. Everybody came running to see what was going on. Look, 
they were amazed and they said, look, are these not all who speak Galileans? Verse 8, and how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made me to know the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. And many wonders or miracles and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. 
So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the beginning of the church. A couple of, couple of baseline facts to, for you to have in mind. We're not... Our, our goal this time is not to study everything about the church, but look at some distinctives. But as we would study the whole of the New Testament, we understand this. Entrance into the church comes just as it did in verse 41. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. What's it mean to gladly receive the word? Well, you read, you, you followed along as I read right there. He looked right at those folks and he said, you were all here, right here in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. How much more powerful of a statement could you make but that to say, you were here. If you think he's still buried, you go show me. He preached it to him, but even more so, he said, you crucified him. And it cut them to the heart In other words, when he got done preaching, they said, oh, I am a sinner. And Jesus is the Christ who who what we call the Old Testament spoke about him coming. Now I understand it. I am a sinner. Christ is the Savior. He wasn't just going to be a political leader. He wasn't just going to be a, a king on a white horse with a big sword. He was to be our spiritual savior and to change our lives. And they got it. They were cut to the heart. They said, I've been wrong in the way I've been thinking about him. And so they changed. They came to receive the word, the word of God. And as an evidence of that, they were baptized. As we begin our study today, I would, I would not want to... Uh, forget to say, I would not want to fail to say, have you believed in Christ as your Savior? Being a member of the church is a formality we go through for a variety of reasons, but the real important thing is believing in Christ that brings you into the capital C church, the body of Christ. When you believe in Christ, you become a member of the body of Christ. And you will be there until you see Christ face to face, as we've already talked about today. Now, what we understood from this chapter starting last week is this. God has made the church to be, and I've put some poetic words here. You'll give me some poetic license, but I hope you'll remember the words He's made the church to be a curiosity. What, I mean, what do I mean by that? Well, you followed, as I read, about what God did through and in the church, and the result of what he did in the church caused the people outside the church to come around and go, what is going on here? It's a curiosity. It's an advertisement. God tells us today to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, we are to live our lives in in a godly way so that people are, are inclined to say, why do you live that way? On the airplane coming home from my trip to Asia, I sat down and it seems like most of the time the people who sit next to me aren't that talkative, but the person next to me was quite talkative, and uh, she was a middle-aged mom, and as I learned, as the flight went on, I realized her husband and two sons were in the seats behind us, and he'd been over there on business, and she and the kids were over, were uh, doing the tourist thing. And, uh, you know, she said, uh, why were you in China? And I said, well, I was there teaching the Bible. Oh, <laughs> and uh, as the discussion went on, uh, we discovered that we had some differences of opinion about what God means in his word, and she became uncommunicative. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I don't often do that. I've done it a couple times on a plane where I really try to talk to some, you know, hey, if you want to talk about the Lord, I'll talk about the Lord right up until you quit talking. And uh, I, I hope I gave a good impression. I hope that I enunciated what I was doing in a positive way and my concern for the Chinese people. And I hope when she goes home to New York City or wherever they're from, I hope that somehow there'll be a little bit of a curiosity stuck in her mind. That's what we're supposed to do. I'm not saying I did it particularly well. I'm just saying that's one opportunity I had to do that. Hmm. We are supposed to live our lives in a way that people want to know why we live our lives that way. That And our church is supposed to be that way. We have succeeded in doing that a little bit with our parking lot party on October 31st. We don't celebrate Halloween here. It truly is the devil's night. It is the most popular night of the year for outrageous partying by those who don't know the Lord. We don't celebrate that. But I tell you what we do, and we started this about five or six years ago. We said, you know, we can provide something that the community sees as a service, and they will come here and they will say, wow, you know, this is really great. Why are you doing this? Why are you giving away 800 pounds of candy? Why are you giving away hot dogs? Why are you putting on these games? And, and why is there people playing music? And, and why are you all doing all of this? I hope you'll be ready to answer that question on October 31st. I do. And I hope you'll, find, I hope you'll think about it between now and then and say, you know what, we're, we're here because we love you and we love our community and we know that this is something that, that can bless you. And, and you know, there's some, we know some other things that could bless you too. You know, probably a lot of those people will become uncommunicative at that point. But maybe a couple of them will, will say, wow, tell me more about this. We are to be an advertisement for Christ in whatever we do and in the way that we do it. On Sunday morning, we are supposed to be an advertisement for Christ so that if somebody walks up in here, they see the Lord in us somehow, some way. Through our friendliness, through our sincerity, through our intensity about God's word, whatever it is, they're supposed to see that. Our hope should show, especially in difficult times, when things don't go the way we want it to go, God especially wants us to show our hope. Number two, the church is to be an incubator. And I'm, by the way, if you weren't here last week, you can go online, get the, and, and download the sermon, listen to the whole thing. I'm just reviewing as we lead up to uh, where we're going to this week. The church is to be an incubator. The church should be a warm, nurturing environment that enables people to learn God's truth with a view to believing in Christ as Savior and growing up in Him as Lord. And the, the image that we brought forth last week from Thessalonians, from, the, from Paul's work among the Thessalonians, was that of a parent, a mother and a father who cares for their child and tries to create an environment in which the child can grow up and learn and become a good and godly adult. We're to be an incubator. Number three, we're to be a hospital. Jesus talked about those who think they are well and those who are sick by virtue of sin in their life. Those who think they are well think they have no sin, but those who are sick are overcome with sin. And we need to, be, we need to love sinners. A real church loves sinners, and that means there's going to be stuff in their life that we need to help them work through. That is the hard work of being a church right there. It's the hard work of being a Christian who makes disciples. We need to be willing to, to help people work through the challenges. The real church targets its ministry to people whose lives aren't perfect. We don't try to find people who are already living like a Christian. We try to find people who need the Lord. Number three, a real church is like Christ who came to seek and to save that which was lost. This week, as we go forward, we're going to understand that the church is to be a seminary. Church is to be a seminary. Now, I don't know, I don't know what the word seminary means to you, 
Um, there are a, a variety of meanings attached to that, both good and bad. But look at verse 42 of Acts 2. In verse 41, we read about people believing in Christ and being baptized to identify with Christ. And there were 3,000 of them in that first crowd. And look what they did, verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, you may have the word teaching in some of your translations, which is perfectly acceptable. The word doctrine in the scriptures means the content of teaching. Sometimes people think doctrine is something that is dull or boring um, because it's dry and technical. That is not at all what it means in the scripture. It means the content of teaching. For instance, if we were to search the scriptures and bring out all of the truth about Jesus Christ, we would bring that all together and call that the doctrine of Christ. We could bring out, uh, we could do that with any particular topic. And so on any given thing, there is a doctrine of that, of that issue. And we need to understand, basically he's saying this, this is God's truth. It's God's word. And so we need to ask the question, why is doctrine so important? Only God's doctrine brings people to saving faith in Christ. Only God's doctrine brings people to saving faith in Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. In other words, if we're, let's say we're going to go out into the world and we're going to walk up to somebody who has never heard anything of a Christian nature and we want them to become a Christ follower. How's that going to happen? Is it going to happen if we talk to them about their self-esteem? Is it going to happen if we talk to them about social justice? It's a very popular term in the evangelical world right now. And, And some people would go so far as to say there is the gospel of Christ that saves the soul and, and Christ also commanded us equally with the gospel to help people change their physical lives. But would we go out and preach social justice without the gospel? We have two hospitals in the country of Togo. Are we primarily interested in the physical well-being of the people? Or are we interested in bringing them to Christ and helping them with their physical existence? The way people come to Christ, it seems so obvious, and yet we don't sometimes say it this way. Without the truth of God, no one comes to be a Christ follower. Without the truth of God, no one is on the path to heaven. Without the truth of God, no one can be born again. The gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ. Now, some people push back on the idea of truth and of doctrine, but look what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 1. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or to change the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preached any other gospel to you other than the one that has been preached, let him be accursed. You know what this word really means? It means let him go to hell. Man, that is some strong language. That is some strong language. I, I, I don't say that to people who come to my door preaching another gospel. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I have the freedom to say that. But what we understand here is this. The, the simple purity of God's word is so important that the apostle Paul said if somebody is going to preach a different gospel away with them doctrine is important what you believe about Jesus Christ and mankind determines whether or not you will go to heaven 
You need to be absolutely clear on this doctrine for yourself and for those to whom you will speak about Christ. We, of all of the doctrines in the Bible, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of Christ needs to be one that is rock solid within us. Only God's doctrine brings, brings people to saving faith and only God's doctrine can liberate a Christian from sinful ruin. From Second Peter, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's speaking of God's truth. Knowledge is speaking of God's truth, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption or ruin that is in the world through lust, through strong desire. I don't subscribe to People magazine, but I always look at the cover when I go through it at, go through the grocery stand. I want to see who's getting divorced. I want to see who's cheating on who. I should ask you to raise your hand right now if you subscribe to People magazine, shouldn't I? No, I shouldn't. If you... You see that word right there? The corruption that is in the world through, just paraphrase that sinful desire. If you want to define that word, read People magazine. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that sadly. When the latest and greatest super couple gets divorced, people go, wow. What in the world? And you know why that happens? Because of strong desire, sinful desire. You see, you can watch Dr. Phil or Oprah or Steve Harvey. I, I guess he's the, he's the latest and greatest. And you can try to gather some wisdom, try to gather some knowledge but there is a fundamental thing that is missing from every secular source of knowledge. And it's power. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through the precious promises, we can partake in his nature and escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. I'm pretty sure Dr. Phil was raised in a Southern Baptist home, and a lot of the stuff he says bumps right up against biblical accountability. But there's no power, because the power only can come from God, and that can only come from God's truth. Only God's truth has the power of God embedded in it. He only promises to bless his words Why are so many of the old-time, mainline churches dying? Why are the big denominations shrinking, shrinking, shrinking? Because years ago, they stopped preaching the plain truth of God's word, and they substituted for it other ideas. Now, that alone is not the cause of their demise. The cause of their demise is people's lives aren't being changed. You want to go to church and do something religious, there's all kinds of options. But if you want to have your life changed, it comes through God's truth. Only God's doctrine can liberate a Christian from sinful ruin, and only God's doctrine can guide us to be a genuine church. Listen to Paul's instruction to Timothy within just... Uh, you know, 30 or 40 years of, of, of Acts chapter 2. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Do you understand that 
he was urging Timothy, he was saying, listen, some people have rejected good doctrine and what they're listening to, I don't think he was saying literally fables and genealogies, but more so he was characterizing the quality of what they were listening to. He said, it's like a fable. And, and, and the idea of a genealogy or, or something that we're going to de- derive some wisdom from. Now, the purpose of the commandment, the purpose of saying teach them, make sure they don't teach any other doctrine, the purpose of that commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and from a sincere faith from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk. We are either going to be a church that preaches God's word, which is a real church, or a church that leaves God's word and goes to other ideas. Let me ask you some questions and see see how sharp you are today, class. How do you suppose that churches and church denominations came to support a woman's so-called right to end the life of her unborn child. How did a church get to that point? By walking away from God's truth one step at a time. How do you suppose churches and church denominations came to the point of approving homosexual behavior to the extent that they ordain men and women into the pastorate who are openly living in a homosexual sin. I mean, you stop, you step back and you go, these churches used to preach God's truth. Princeton Seminary was the home of strong, fundamental Bible teaching a guy named J. Gretchen Machen wrote one of the textbooks still used today for New Testament Greek classes when he was a professor there. Maybe he was the president there, if I recall. A little different story at Princeton today. How, how do we go from there to here? By letting go of God's truth and substituting man's ideas. How do you suppose churches... Churches have come to the teaching that everyone will go to heaven. The latest fella to make a splash that way is a guy named Rob Bell, who was really well known for some of his teaching and some of his methodology, and he wrote a book called Love Wins, and he basically said there there is no hell, God's not going to send anybody to hell. Do you know, I, I wish that was true. But the truth of God says, whether or not you, whether you believe in Christ now is going to determine whether you go to heaven or to hell. How does a church get to the point of letting go of such a simple fundamental doctrine? Well, I believe Paul explains it to us in 2 Timothy 4. Here, Paul is right at the end of his life, and he's given Timothy a final set of instructions. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. This is a very solemn charge. You get that? You're going to stand before God and answer for how you carried on the ministry. And so what's the charge? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all patience and teaching. For the time will come... When they, people out there in churches, will not endure sound doctrine or true Bible teaching, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables or to falsehoods. Why do people change their doctrine? They change their doctrine because God's word at some point does not fit what they want to hear. There was a pastor who went down to start a church in San Francisco just about 10 years ago. 
He was a strong biblical fundamentalist associated with the, the Bible Presbyterian. I, I don't know the exact group. He went down there and they said, we're going to go right in there and we're going to preach God's word and we're going to bring people to Christ. And they did that. And they did that. But at some point, this pastor's heart began to change. And now he has led the church all the way to a point where they have changed their constitution that they will accept into full membership and full participation in the church homosexuals. Now, could it be that his sons turn to a homosexual lifestyle cause this pastor to reconsider the truth of God and say, oh God, you wouldn't send my son to hell, would you? Now, I'm not saying that homosexuality sends people to hell any more than any other sin. What God says is that if you live in a sinful lifestyle, you're not born again. We want things in our heart. We look around at people and we want them to go to heaven. My wife's father rejected the gospel until the end of his life. He literally put his hand up and told my daughter to stop talking about it. Does that hurt? Yeah. Do you enjoy preaching at that memorial service? No. Mm. Would I like to think that everybody who, who basically lived a good life is going to go to heaven? Yeah. Yeah. I got some other people in my extended family that don't look like they're on the path to heaven either. Should I change? Should I start to soften what God's word says? Because I don't really want to think that some hard things are going to happen. I'm reminded of the disciples when, they, when Jesus said to them, who do you say that we are? And they said, we believe that you're the Christ. And, and who else are we going to go to? No one else has the words of life. Oh, man, I, 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 it is, the hardest thing I have to do is to balance the telling of the truth with the love of God. I want you to know, if you're here today struggling with homosexuality or any other sin, I love you, and I want you to know God's freedom but the only way that's going to happen is if you will acknowledge your sin and acknowledge the fact that God wants to make you a new life. I'm reminded of a friend who was dealing with a, a situation of very clear-cut sin in, in the church that he pastored. A woman came in and was trying to change his mind about this situation because it involved her best friend. And as they talked about it, he came to a point where he said, well, I'm just trying, and she said, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to be biblical, but I just think we need some common sense. Does it hurt when your best friend is living in sin and won't submit to the rebuke of the church? Oh, yeah. Should we soften what God's word says to try to have a big tent and include everybody? It would be great if everybody fit in the tent, but God is just too demanding for that. What's it going to be, folks? Common sense and a dying church with no lives transformed or God's truth with lives growing to honor Christ. The church is to be a seminary. We are to be a place where we study the word, we know the word, we teach the word, and we live the word. And we teach it in a way that it can be lived. It's not truth for truth's sake, it's transformational truth. Number five, the church is to be a temple. Church is to be a temple. Look back at, 
at Acts chapter 2, again, verse 42. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. We're going to come back to fellowship next week. And the breaking of bread and in prayers. The breaking of bread here refers to the Lord's Supper. And it's, you know, the, the Lord's Supper is referred to by a series of different names in the Scripture. You'll see that in the verses we're going to look at. But the breaking of bread would just be one of those. And it comes from passages like this. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion? You see, we, that's a, a word that we used to use a lot, communion. We've talked about the Lord's Supper that way. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And so I, I just share this with you to, to say this, you know, the breaking of bread. Uh, Luke twenty two nineteen. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Now, there is some symbology in the breaking of the bread, but there's a really simple answer to the question, why did Jesus break the bread? Class? What's that? It wasn't sliced. <laughs> I got to write that down. Not sliced. <laughs> not only was it not sliced, it was not sliceable. It was bread made without leavening or without a rising agent. And so it would be more like what we call a cracker today or something similar to that. It hadn't raised up, so it was not sliced. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Jesus broke the bread to hand it out, okay? And, uh, you know, later there is a, 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 mis, uh, a mistranslation when one of the scriptures says, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. It's not broken because what? None of his bones were broken, that's right, but his body was given. His body was given as he gave the bread to them. What you need to understand here, when it references the breaking of the bread, this is the beginning of what we would call the observing of the Lord's Supper. You call it communion, you call it the Lord's Supper, you call it the breaking of the bread, whatever you call it. Um, when they came together, they observed the Lord's Supper. Now on the first day of the week, and by the way, Monday is not the first day of the week, <laughs> Saturday is the last day of the week, the Sabbath day. Sunday is the first day of the week. When they came on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, in other words, one of their strong purposes in coming together was to break bread. And I think you'll understand in just a minute the, the, the broader intent of that as well. Paul was ready to depart and so on. I just show you that to say when they came together, the breaking of bread was part of what they do. In time, the Christians at Corinth needed some remedial instruction about the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord, and this is the Apostle Paul telling what he heard from Jesus. Now, when he says, I received it from the Lord, he was not in the upper room. He received this by direct communication from Christ himself. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken or given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That is the key instruction there. Do this in remembrance of me. Christ asked us to remember him through the eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. The bread reminds us of his suffering. The cup reminds us of his blood shed, that is his death. And so the, the name of the point that I've given you that you'll see in a minute again here is this. We are to be a temple class. What went on in the Old Testament temple? Ooh. Worship. Worship. We're going to look at three things at least that are part of worship. We, we could identify more, but there's three of them here. And the first one is this, the Lord's Supper is an act of worship. And my intention today is not to define everything about the Lord's Supper, but it is not an act whereby we are saved. We do not eat the body and blood of Christ and take our salvation into us. We remember him. 
And that is what worship is about. It's about thinking of God and giving God glory, uh, whether it's the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. This Lord's Supper is an act of worship. And in Acts chapter 2, there's also a reference to prayer. They continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread and in prayers. In Paul's instruction to Timothy about the church, he he gave him this opening charge about doctrine in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, when he starts to give him specific uh, things they were to be doing in church, he says, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Those are several different words to talk about prayer. In the book of Acts, we see the church gathered. When they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, and John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. The word prayer is the most general word for talking to God. The word supplication means to make a request I bring this scripture forward to say that's what they did as part of gathering together. They went up into the upper room and they prayed. Now, what I really want to communicate with you today is the concept of worship as it relates to prayer. We, we could obviously spend many Sundays talking about prayer in the scripture. Here is a, there's a little acronym that was developed years ago to teach people how to pray and it's very good, but I'd like to just make one little, uh, one little change to the focus of it. And they, they used this little acronym because they thought it would be helpful. They said A stands for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. And the idea was that you should start your prayer with worship. You should start talking to God about who God is and what he has done for you. And then you should progress to confessing your sin Uh, talking about what you've done wrong and uh, expressing that to God. And then thanksgiving, saying thank you to God for all the things that he's done. And then then at the end, coming to making requests for things or supplication. The thing that I would challenge you with that I hope will help your prayer life is this. Every expression of dependence on God is an act of worship. Sometimes we, we, we mistakenly limit worship to saying good things about God. And that is worship, don't get me wrong. We categorize music. Some music is worship music or praise music or a hymn or a psalm, as we'll see in a minute. And we say, well, this music is worship, but this music isn't worship. Um, because this talks directly about God and this doesn't talk directly about him And so when we come to prayer, we think, well, I need to spend some time in worship. I got good news for you. Anytime you're asking God for help, you're expressing worship. How can I make a statement like that? It's because when we ask for God's help, we are saying, you're the only one I have to turn to. In fact, I would submit to you that that might be the greatest reason God has told us to pray. Um, I've been in an elders meeting with, uh, with Jim and Chet and Chuck when he was here. When we were talking about some ideas or something we should do, in fact, I quoted you this week, and my fellows on the Council of 15, they love this, Jim. In fact, I think they're going to be repeating it uh, in the very near future. We came to something that we were going to do, and it looked like, oh, absolutely, no doubt, this is what we should do. It's clear, plain. And Jim said, this is such a no-brainer. We should really pray. And do you get that? When we think we know exactly what to do, we need to say, wait a minute. Are we going to move forward in our own strength? Are we going to move forward in our own wisdom? Or are we going to say, I need to pray about everything? I need to talk to God about everything. I need to, to seek his wisdom, to seek his help about everything. That's worship. I'm saying, God, you're the only one I have to turn to. You're the one who has the wisdom. You're the one who can help me in this thing. And so I want to encourage you that every expression of dependence on him, when we, when we say, God, you are great and you've done great things, that's an act of worship. 
when we confess our sin, we're saying, God, you are right and I am wrong. That's an act of worship. When we say, thank you for the things that you've done, that's an act of worship. And when we say, God, I need some help and you're the only one I can turn to, that is an act of worship. Now, there's one more aspect to worship and... um, Turn back with me to 1 Chronicles 25. Be careful of the dust. Because I want to talk about music for just a minute and understand that music is an act of worship. We have a very interesting passage of, 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 uh, of Scripture here in 1 Chronicles 25 that we don't often think about in terms of the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles 25.1. Moreover, David... And the captains of the army separated for the service some of the sons of Asaph, of Haman, of Jeduthun, who should prophesy, speak God's word, with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals. And the number of the skilled men performing the service was, and it goes through this number of of each of the families And we drop down to verse 7. So the number of them with their brethren who were instructed in the songs of the Lord, all who were skillful, was 288. That's a big worship team. Do you understand? David went to the captains of the army and he said, I want you to go out through all of your divisions or whatever they called them and say, find the people who are good at singing and playing instruments. And they found 288 people and they said, you're going to be full-time musicians. You are going to lead the worship of God. And if you look through the Psalms, you will see notations about worship. And so we understand that worship through music, again, there's worship through prayer, there's worship through reading the scripture and so on, but worship through music was very important in the Old Testament was very important in the Old Testament era. Singing is part of God's plan for the church ministry. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Isn't that interesting? Teaching and admonishing in music. In other words, it's not just an act of worship. It is worship, but it also can be educational. Singing was practiced by the first century church. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm. And and by the way, when you see the word psalm in the New Testament, it's referring to the Old Testament psalms put to music. One has a teaching, one has a tongue. Let all things be done for edification. And so they practiced that singing was done in the first century church. Jesus and the disciples sang. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The word hymn in that era of Greek meant a song to the gods. They had secular songs to their secular gods, but it was brought over into the New Testament. So you had psalms, which would be the actual words of the Old Testament psalms. And then you had hymns, which were songs written about praise to God. And then you had a category called spiritual songs, which appear to be like testimonial things. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus sang... I wonder how he sang. You know, in terms of his appearance, it said there's nothing beautiful that we should want him for his physical appearance, Isaiah 53. I wonder what his singing was like. I know what it'll be like someday. Singing is an evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And what, what comes out when you're filled with the Spirit? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And of course, singing will be part of our worship in heaven. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God uh, by your blood out of every tribe. And many references to singing in in the uh, book of Revelation talking about the future. The Lord's Supper, prayer, and singing are all God-ordained parts of worship 
when the church gathers. What I really want to share with you here is just a few summary thoughts about worship. Worship is thinking about God. Okay? We don't have the Lord's Supper. Uh... For our own benefit. Jesus said, would you think about me? We don't pray. We we gain benefit from prayer, but we offer prayer of worship to God for God's sake. We sing to God for God's sake. Worship is thinking about God. Worship is giving honor to God. You know, telling him why he is great. Thanking him for what he has done. Worship is dependent on God's truth. In John 4, Jesus said, God wants people to worship him in the spirit that is with their, with their internal person and in truth. Worship is expressing dependence on God. Worship is an act of the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember, Jesus said, somebody said, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Worship should be about loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And essentially, when we come down to the end, worship is to be God-focused. God-focused. And I would take that especially from this reference in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing, knowing what? From the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. You ever have one of those moments where you're glad people can't read your mind? Boy, you know, God tells us to control our thoughts. I work at that. But, boy, there's some times I'm glad people can't read my mind. You know, if, if, if we were having a worship service and, and, uh, and Jesus stood here and looked at us, and you remembered those references in the Gospels where he knew what people were thinking, would that change what's going on in you when we're worshiping? Mm. our son's mother and father-in-law live over in Port Orchard and, and they volunteer with a ministry at the federal rest home for veterans and uh, they asked me to come help them with their sound system a little bit and so I decided it'd be easy to come up the back way from, uh, from Cannon Beach, come up there and come in the backside of Port Orchard and, and uh, make that stop on the way home, which we did. I looked at the map and kind of got a basic bearing, but there's a lot of turns, a lot of turns coming up that road. And uh, we went a little ways, and I said, get an address so I can put it in this GPS unit. And we had to make a few phone calls to get the address. Well, we got the address and put it in, and it's a good thing because within about a quarter of a mile or less, there was a turn that I would have gone the wrong way. I would have thought, well, ooh, there we go. And then I would have had to turn back and, you know, do some of that. I, I, don't, I don't do that very often. <laughs> when I remember that I have a GPS unit, there are no signs between Cannon Beach and Port Orchard, almost no signs that say Port Orchard this way. <laughs> because there are all them other little towns in between. Okay. God's word is the only way to know how to be a real church. It's not from some expert somewhere, and I'm not discounting that. I read a lot of books. I'm not against that. I'm just saying we can wander through a man-made religion attempting to honor God in our own strength but we may not arrive at our intended destination. We need to search God's word and follow his instructions so we can be about his will and honor him and reap the blessing that he's planned for us. Father, oh, Father, please take your word today and uh, filter out anything that, that wasn't your truth that I said, and please make us a more biblical church.
Father, I, I think we're doing a lot of things the way you want us to do them, but I, I'm certain there's room for improvement. And I'm certain that there's a need for us to stand for the truth, to encourage others to stand for the truth. And I pray that you'd help us to do that. And most of all, I pray today, Father, that if there's somebody here who has never believed in Christ as their Savior, I, believe, I, I pray that you would open their eyes and their heart Help them to come and ask. Help us to to find a way to share your truth so that they can go out of here today believing in Christ. Change lives here for your glory. I pray in Christ's name, amen.